Before we get started, I just want to warn you all that this episode contains some discussions of homophobia and disgust as a response that some folks have to LGBTQ people. Um, I know that a lot of folks live with some deep wounds inflicted by religious communities, and I just wanted to give you a heads up in case you wanted to skip this one. For everyone else, I hope this episode gives you some helpful tools to further examine and deconstruct your implicit biases and ingrained biological responses. Humans are complicated, y'all. We need all the help we can get. So let's get started. You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... Kendra Holtmore, PhD student at Boston University. And something I would never eat is... A slug. Ian Benz, associate professor of elementary science education at UNC Charlotte. And something I'm fairly certain I would never eat is a cat. Adam Pryor, I work at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. I am fairly certain that I would never eat gravel. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't there a guy that ate a whole airplane? Like piece by piece over the course of a year. It seems probable. Probably. It doesn't, yeah. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania. And I don't think I'd ever eat anything that is made with blood. Like steak? Like blood sausage. Wait, what? And blood pudding. And like when they actually just use blood. I don't mean like juicy steak, because that's not blood. But like when they just take blood and make something out of it, I'm not into that. Hmm. What about a like rare steak that actually does have blood? No, rare steaks don't have blood either. That's that's um that's a different type of muscle fluid. The blood uh-huh. is drained out of the animals. Otherwise, the uh, the meat gets nasty and gamey. That's why most like deer doesn't taste great because people shoot it and then they don't drain the blood properly. And then the blood congeals inside of the muscles, and it's no good. Hmm. All right, well. Here's your lesson from the mountains of Pennsylvania. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, I don't eat steak that often. (laughs) Well, no, we call it bloody, right? We say bloody. I want it still mooing, but it's it's not real blood. That's not blood. That's just some kind of other body fluid. I mean, to be clear, I don't eat rare steak even when I do eat steak. I prefer medium well precisely to avoid anything that looks bloody. <laughs> so why are we talking so much about meat and blood? <laughs> yeah, great question. <laughs> uh, so today we're going to talk about the emotion of disgust. Um, so This is a continuation of our conversation about big emotions. And our last episode on emotions, we talked about awe. And so this week, um, disgust is an emotion that you might call um, an other judging emotion. Uh, It's an emotion that is all about policing boundaries, whether those boundaries are personal or interpersonal. The goal of disgust is to keep you safe, safe from physical contaminants or moral contaminants. Um, And so it has this really interesting dynamic of relating to, to the different domains of your physical self and also your moral and ethical self. And so there's a a lot to discuss. Um, And it's, I say that it's an other judging emotion because it's different than um, another category of emotions that we would call the self-conscious emotions, um, which could involve things like shame. Um, And so we'll talk more about those in later episodes, but um, disgust, one of the other basic things to know about disgust is that like I've already sort of hinted at, there are different categories of disgust. And so when we refer to those different categories, we can think of them in three different ways. So we have core disgust, which is about the literal body boundary. So, you know, the things that we would never eat might be things that disgust us because they are um, unfamiliar to our culture 
or they might be um, literal poison. And so when we think about putting that in our body, it's it's disgusting to us as sort of a, a reflex for our, ourselves to be, you know, making good decisions about what to eat and what not to eat. But those things are also, um, it's a combination of this like reflex and also what you learn from your culture about what is safe or not safe to eat. Um, and then, uh, so that's core disgust. And then there's socio-moral disgust. And uh, this kind of disgust can, it relates to norms and taboos that are embedded in society. And so different categories of socio-moral disgust might be related to um, hygiene or, um, you know, just like the basics of interacting with people. And uh, the last category of disgust is animal reminder disgust. And this category of disgust is all about death and mortality. And it's about the way that humans uh, do things in life to separate ourselves from animals and to try to buffer ourselves and, you know, live in a world where we see ourselves as something that is like more transcendent or more immune to like the death and weakness and the things that we either consciously or subconsciously associate with animals. And so it's just a way of seeing humans as special. So these are the the basic three ways that we can talk about the different forms of disgust that we feel and notice in people and in societies. So just to, to give that little intro, um, I think it would be fun if we just like went around and described uh, our like disgust experiences to tell, to tell a story about um, either like something that disgusts you or maybe a, a time when you didn't understand why someone else was disgusted with something that you really enjoyed and just like why do you think that happened. So I don't mind starting because I have a very specific instance that came to mind for me and it was when several years ago my family actually lived in Malaysia for a while because my um, dad is a pilot. And so when I was in high school, we moved to Malaysia for him to take this job. And um, I had never been around, uh, I had never seen in real life, I'd only seen like a couple of pictures, but didn't know anything about this fruit called durian. And maybe some of you know what durian is. Um, I do not. I look forward to hearing about it. (laughs) (laughs) But it is, um, I believe it is the, like the national fruit of Malaysia, if I'm not mistaken, I might need to double check that. But um, it's, it's a little hard to describe, uh, because the smell is what you notice first. And if you are someone who was not born and raised in Malaysia, or other countries that are familiar with durian, you might, like me, find it an utterly disgusting smell and fruit to be around. There are stories um, of airports shutting down because shipments of durian come through. And if you are unfamiliar with the smell, it can smell a lot like a gas leak. Um, It's such a strong smell. There are bans in certain restaurants um, that tell people they're not allowed to bring durian into certain enclosed spaces because the smell can be so overwhelming. And it's just something to know about durian. But all across Malaysia, um, or at least where I was living in Kuala Lumpur, there were um, areas like all all around the city where there would be these um, durian-specific outdoor stands set up for people to go and eat durian together. And these durian stands would have, you know, different kinds of like snack packs and different um, durian based foods that people could go and buy, but because you couldn't necessarily find it just at any store because it was such a strong, uh, strongly smelling fruit. And so one day my mom thought that we should all as a family try durian together. And um, she sort of sprung this on me. And I I was not mentally prepared for it, or physically prepared for it. Um, And I came in the house one day after a sweaty game of tennis, and all I really wanted was to like drink water. And my mom approaches me with a spoon and just shoves a spoon of durian in my mouth and says, today's the day we're trying durian. (laughs) 
And I, so I had no choice, really. I took a bite of the durian and not exaggerating, I had to immediately like go take a shower and like brush my teeth. I just couldn't handle it. (laughs) And so probably if you are a a Malaysian who's listening to this right now, you might be like craving some durian. I mean, I I had other friends who really like durian and, you know, the strong smell of it is something that, uh, you know, is like special about it and something that a lot of people, if you grew up with it, you love that. But to me, it was unfamiliar. I didn't know how to like eat it or what to eat with it, or even just how to like understand like why I should eat it. I don't really know the nutrient facts about durian. It's just this strange smelling fruit that is in no grocery stores that I uh, am ever frequenting in Boston, definitely. Um, but it's just outside of my like cultural experience. And so this was something for me that definitely triggered disgust (laughs) for uh, a number of reasons. Um, But the unfamiliarity of it uh, was definitely part of that for me. So uh, that's, that's what I think of when I think about my own preferences for food (laughs) and what I would not eat (laughs) again. So that is an example of maybe core disgust. It's just about food and there's nothing moral or immoral about durian, but it was just something for me that did not work. So other stories that um, any of y'all might have could be core disgust or maybe something else that you that comes up for you when you think about disgust. Hey, hey Kendra, what were the other two types again? Just yeah, so um, the uh, socio-moral disgust okay. is um, one that's about like interpersonal interactions, um, and so that could touch on things like hygiene. You know, like maybe you're disgusted by people eating with their mouth open or something. Um, that that could be an example in that category. It's not, you know, sometimes it's moral. It's not necessarily moral. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, rules about purity and impurity would fit in that category. Yeah, it's kind of um, just then, generally taboo. Yeah, and then okay. animal reminder disgust is more existential about like death and mortality and distinguishing humans from other creatures. So I have a potential, um, and you can tell me if this qualifies or not, but I, I've shared before that my experience within certain charismatic fundamentalist Christian um circles was less than ideal. We'll put it very lightly. There was some spiritual abuse and some things that I'm still working out in myself. And a big part of those religious experiences was the music. Like um, in Pentecostal churches, you might have, if the spirit is leading, you might end up with an hour, hour and a half of just singing the same three songs. And in this particular school, um, there were a couple of songs that people kind of fallback sort of songs. And to this day, if I hear a certain patch on a keyboard or a certain chord progression, which was familiar to like the Ron Cannolis of the of of the time then I feel a visceral sickness in my stomach. Um, Almost like that electric piano patch or that chord progression takes me back. It brings me back to that place and it makes me feel sick. And I don't know if that qualifies as a disgust or if that's a different episode. I I think that's a really good question to raise because there is some disagreement about whether uh, some of the like physiological things we feel that we sometimes label disgust. Some people would say actually what you're feeling and what you might otherwise label those feelings as is anger. 
And so I think that's, um, there's definitely, it, it, disgust is not always um, so easy to to label. And I think something that we, we'll see again and again is that these emotions that we're talking about can, we describe them in these general ways and like assign these standard characteristics to these emotions, but they feel different in our bodies sometimes. And so I think mm. if you would describe it as a feeling of disgust, then I think it's a little bit hard to argue that what you're feeling is not disgust. <laughs> um, but it could also be um, like mingled with these other emotions too, because we can feel more than one thing at a time. So, yeah. well, like when I was in my, I think I was 22 or something, someone had, maybe I saw it online that you could take Skittles remove the purple ones and put them into a bottle of vodka and let them sit and dissolve and then strain them afterwards. And then you end up with this Skittle flavored vodka and it was delicious. And I brought it to a friend's house and I drank almost the whole bottle and I got so sick from the sugar and the alcohol (laughs) that night and the next day. And it was maybe the sickest I'd ever been. And I had I uh, even smelling v- vodka or even rubbing alcohol for almost years afterwards gave me that that same visceral like oh, oh response this it was bringing up this memory of a negative experience I'd had in the past don't if you if you try this at home friends it is delicious but um drink in moderation <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm okay, but I appreciate. <laughs> but why, I think why that, is it just the purple ones? This is also like this is the question that actually came up for me. Like, could you go with the orange important. ones? Well, so it had to do with the. They're all different flavors. It's not right. Um, and so something about that changed the flavor in a bad way. It also, when you add the purple, the the color of it ends up as like a brown. So if you remove the purple, it's still brightly colored. Ah, I guess okay. it was a long time ago. The I internet gotcha. was still young. I okay. I feel better about this now. I that's 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 helpful. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you feel better now. I'm so glad. Well, I, I, I was just. I, I mean, it, it it felt super like biased against the purple that you removed those. If there wasn't like a a decent reason to, um, I mean, I want to taste the full rainbow in my vodka. So like, <laughs> that's. But I, so on a more serious note though, like, so I guess one of the the things that comes up for me, like in in Zach's example, right, is like how, and I I truly don't know, like how important is that bodily dimension of disgust, like in terms of identifying it? Like, can I, do I, do I have like, because I feel like my disgust reaction to, uh, you know, the story that we could all tell about the liquor we drank too much of and then can't even look at without feeling a little nauseous is both similar and dissimilar to the disgust I feel uh, when I'll just name it right. When Trump speaks about coronavirus, mm, that's where I was going to go today. Right. Yeah. And and like the, the feeling of sickness when I look at, in my case, tequila, not, you know, rainbow flavored <laughs> vodka um, is, is not the same as the feeling I get when I hear like the New York Times story this morning uh, about that Trump knew coronavirus was bad and decided that he would soft pedal it, right? Like I had a, a nauseous feeling, but it wasn't the same nausea. And maybe that has to do with like, you know, expectations and that kind of thing. But I'm wondering, like, I'm trying to come up with an experience of disgust that I would have that doesn't include, like, a feeling of physical illness. Yeah. No, that's a great question. And I think, again, this relates a little bit to the the critique that people have that, oh, well, disgust is just, like, a metaphor for anger. Like, you don't necessarily feel something, but you know what you're supposed to to judge accordingly as, like, bad or good. And so disgust is an easy uh, or just like a convenient way to articulate uh, Mm. how you 
like what your principles are about the object or person in question. Um, but I think on the other hand, the the bodily dimension is important in that if if we just start with like the core disgust, which is related to the durian and the the skittle vodka and you know the tequila i guess for you adam whatever it is that's a story um, for another time <laughs> but uh so like the question of whether or not disgust is something that you will feel every time that you encounter one of these things or like when do those feelings of disgust start and like how long do they last so the way that um, people or like researchers talk about disgust is one that like when you're uh, when you're a baby, you don't really have a lot of disgust responses. You know, like babies, they roll around. Like when I was a baby, I my mom tells a story about me like picking up maggots in the from the trash in the kitchen and just like eating them repeatedly. Mm. And as oh. my adult self. I am repulsed by myself thinking about that story. <laughs> Obviously, that's not something I would do now. That's some pretty good but the point is, <laughs> thank you, Zach, uh, a, um... bringing us back to sustainability. <laughs> Absolutely. And remind me to tell you later about Ento milk, which is different oh. than what we were talking about earlier. Oh, I'm sure. I'm As sure. As you were. So maggots. But, like, <laughs> yeah, the maggots. So kids, you know, babies, toddlers, they don't. They don't always understand what they should be discussed by. And so they'll just like pick up stuff on the ground and, you know, lick things in public transportation, you know, like on the bus. Like they'll, if you're not watching carefully, they will put something disgusting in their mouth, something that we as adults would find disgusting. But over time, uh, you like we each live in a society that has norms about, you know, what like what our food culture is, um, like what food do we come into contact with every day and what do we know is safe to eat? What do we know is nutritious? Um, but not just mm. that, also like what is the food that we associate with community, uh, with coming together with people who are like us? And these things we start to associate with friends, family, safety, security, stability, and um, other things that we, you know, don't either don't have to eat or just like don't come into contact with, or it's not built into our food cultures. Um, those things we learn over time to see as not suitable. And so the response that we start to have when we come into contact with those unfamiliar things or those things marked as like not food, uh, we, one of the responses that our body might have is disgust. And that of course can vary from person to person. Like how, how disgusted will you be if, you know, your friend dares you to like eat a grasshopper? I know from our conversations that Zach might not be as disgusted to pick up a grasshopper and eat it as like me or someone else. But I, I used know. to be, um, yeah, but you so that's that's also something important is like our feelings about disgust can change. And this is true for core disgust, but also moral disgust. Um, and so there are definitely things that I uh, like food items that I used to feel disgusted by that I now eat regularly as an adult. And it's also true that over the course of my life and the way that I've changed religiously and politically, hmm. the things that I grew up and f was informed that I should be disgusted by. For example, I grew up in a culture and, and religion that or like my um, evangelical background was one in which uh, a lot of the, the childhood churches I attended uh, wanted you to be disgusted by uh, the what, I don't know how to say this other than like the gay lifestyle or like the gay agenda, quote unquote. Um, and this, uh, just like sounds so silly to me now to even say it like that, but this was said in sincerity to like be disgusted by these quote choices that people were making to, you know, hmm. because, because marriage is supposed to be between a man and a woman. And so this was something that uh, there were a lot of feelings of disgust around. And it wasn't until I, you know, grew up and went like moved away and just like started learning more about the world that I realized that I, 
I knew that the expectation was to feel this disgust. I'd watched people that I knew and loved have those feelings of disgust, but I actually didn't feel um, that deep sense of disgust that some people felt. And then on top of that, because that's just like a physical feeling and those don't necessarily say anything good or bad about like what's around us in the world. But I learned that the reason disgust was something people felt was very much tied up with the way that scripture was being interpreted. And it was uh, um, involved with like rules and norms about purity and impurity and what it meant to be pure um, in the eyes of God versus impure in that like LGBT people were a category for are a category for many Christian people that still um, is marked off as impure. And because disgust is about the the policing those boundaries of like what's safe to put in our bodies, but also what's safe to like have in our communities. If you think of the community as an extension of the body as something like food is about policing, like what goes in your mouth or what doesn't, but uh, moral purity is about like who belongs inside your community versus right. outside. And so there's this, um, you're, you want to uh, like push out anything that is impure and that includes people and ideas. And that's why religion and politics is something that's like really interesting to, to talk about in terms of disgust because you have these changes. And so, you know, you, you may grow up and move away and realize that like, there, it doesn't make sense for us to have, to like think about LGBT people as in these terms of like pure and impure. And, you know, now, like whenever I'm, I'm like attending church in um, Boston and, you know, in, in Boston, like it's obviously a more politically left and liberal place. And so um, it's like not even a question as to whether someone who is gay is like pure or impure, because that's just like, not the theological interpretation of scripture that that you're going to see as often. And so um, there's just, it, but th- it's a cultural difference. Like it, it tells you about like where you are, um, the, the disgust triggers that you feel or that you feel pressured to feel will say something about what community you belong to and what maybe what politics you have and what religious tradition or denomination you belong to. I know folks, and you can see this in media and all over the place, that uh, will, in here, in their mind, will say, um, yeah, all, I'm all for LGBTQ rights. I think they're all equal. I, I bless your relationships. It's wonderful. It's great. It's, it's the best. But still feel uncomfortable seeing public displays of affection with same-sex couples and will have no problem with it morally but we'll still feel uncomfortable. This is why, I mean, it's not uncommon to have um, gay couple gay couples on uh, television shows. It is much more uncommon to see them kiss. And this mm-hmm, is still yeah. a big issue. Mm-hmm. Um, even in, uh, this was the, like, and, and when they do, it's often just like a little peck or a side hug or like- little, Yeah, peck on right. the cheek. And especially <laughs> with, um, with, male male relationships is is mm-hmm. like america is still not comfortable with that um and I, I i go through this conversation a lot in in churches when we're working through some of the theological issues um i'm in a united church of christ is a is an open and affirming denomination um we were actually we had our uh our general synod, which is our our biannual meeting, we were in the middle of that when the Supreme Court case that allowed for uh, for same sex weddings was announced, and clergy from this conference left the conference and set up booths to marry people out on the promenade outside of the <laughs> the conference center. Like that's that's the sort of denomination I'm a part of. But still, in that denomination there's like a physical discomfort 
when same-sex couples are affectionate that you do not see with heterosexual couples. And I, I don't know if that's like, there's a difference between our moral beliefs and some deep down firmly entrenched societal religious teaching that you can't quite get rid of yet that was formed early on in your life and you need to expose yourself to more in order to undo that. Um, I don't like pastorally, I don't really know the best way to get people around to not have that response anymore because I don't want to like, like, I don't want to say to my church, like, okay, now we're an open and affirming church. We're all on board with um, LGBTQ rights, and that's wonderful, but you're still a little weird around it, so we're going to parade in, uh, you know, a, a bunch of uh, of people that you can look at and you can get to know and you can watch, and so then it won't be weird anymore because that's so objectifying. And, like, we shouldn't have to do that, but I'm, I struggle with, with this. Um, as a person who leads people and who are trying to be faithful and loving and and kind and open. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, and also just worth noting that like emotions are so complicated and they you you can't really separate yourself from your emotional life. but you know, at the same time, like emotions change and emotions they, more than like indicating what is objective around you, your emotions indicate something about yourself. And so I think that's what's important is like somebody who, uh, because I, I, this feels very familiar, this example that you're sharing, Zach, of people who, you know, come around and are like, oh, okay, like I'm on board with LGBT rights. And I like understand intellectually or like maybe have principles that like align with like supporting these people. Um, but there's this like leftover emotional baggage of, you know, whether it's like disgust or some other form of discomfort emotionally, um, you can't change that automatically. And I think it's just like part of the work of understanding like who, what are the things that we support and what does it say about us? when we have these emotional feelings that don't actually align with the principles we espouse. And I think sometimes it's, sometimes I think it's just a matter of familiarity. Somebody who suddenly ha feels transformed to like support LGBT people, but they don't have any friends who belong to that category. Um, they just don't see it. And um, so there's just still this sense of novelty um, where for someone who lives in, you know, I'll just speak for like where I am now in Boston, it's like not at all unusual, like on a day to day basis, I feel that I'm I'm always surrounded by LGBT um, friends and strangers. And it's just like part of my everyday in a way that it was not when I was living in Abilene, Texas, for example. And so there's definitely something that I think is tied to like this novelty and familiarity element that you learn to see something as um, uh, safe or acceptable, but that takes some time emotionally to adjust to, um, like if, if you believe that you also have to feel it and the feelings will come once you've started like living into what you, what you see as um, like a true or real. Um, and of course, like that's not to say that it's like, you know, it, it's obviously really unfortunate to like have to, like deal with those emotions and to still feel like, like nobody wants to say like, oh yeah, I still feel disgusted by these, you know, like my gay friends or whatever, like that nobody in like your gay friends don't want to hear that you were disgusted by them. Like it's, it's, it's a really complicated human feeling and it, it hurts those people um, because, you know, like why? Um, but it is a reality. I think that is really complicated and people like you, Zach, who have to deal with that in a pastoral sense. I, I don't, I, don't I admire. Or... <laughs> yeah. Like I have no advice for you. I just admire that like, you're someone who has to deal with that. I would not want to have to like be in that position. <laughs> um, at the end of the day, if it comes down to a feeling of disgust in a person or a, person themselves who is being marginalized 
um, I'm always going to side with the person being marginalized. I don't care about yeah. your feelings yeah. of disgust. You can get over yourself at, as far as I'm of concerned. But yeah. So is that a reaction of disgust to someone who feels disgust? I think it is for me. I think it's probably a resp- a reaction of disgust seeing who I used to be in that person. I could pull up my Zanga journal, which I've done in this in this podcast before. Um, my yes, online Jack journal Zanga. back in the day when I was seventeen, and I had applied to Wheaton College, and I wrote this entry about the the Princeton Review ranking systems, and it was ranked the number one most hostile college to uh, LGBT people. And I wrote in my Zanga, like, um, oh, and it was like the worst school for partying and they had the best cafeteria. So I was like, yeah, great food, no alcohol and no gay stuff. This is going to be great. And like, I read that now and I'm disgusted with myself. And I think about all of the people that would be like so hurt by those just callous words just thrown around like they don't mean anything um, because I didn't think they did. And so I think when when somebody else is acting in that way, I see myself in that and I'm disgusted at myself as transferring onto them as well. So I, I guess like part of what I'm wondering is when I am thinking about I think Kendra let herself off the hook too easily, right? Because I think in, this is a place where, like, um, <laughs> edu- edu- educators and clergy actually run into a similar set of issues, mm-hmm. right? Like, I think one could argue that part of the point of education is to help people learn to control a disgust reaction. And that there's – so there's this interesting feature to me, right? Because I think – as we're talking about it, I can hear evolutionarily why disgust is a critical, advantageous emotion, right? I have a 10-month-old. Every time the 10-month-old goes over and puts cat food in his mouth, you know, we yell yuck, right? We're, we're generating that sort of sensibility yeah. to be like, don't eat that thing. It might be bad for you. Like, no, cat food won't actually kill you, and maybe we shouldn't be doing that. But like, yes, I can imagine if we're crawling around outside, um, and you've suddenly picked up a poisonous spider and you're trying to put it in your mouth, and I yell yuck. That's a really important set of reactions. But there's this feeling in me, like now that I'm sort of thinking through this term and thinking about it, right? Like there, there's a good bit of like, I feel like what I try and do in the classroom is to help people undo those sets of disgust emotions that maybe were helpful evolutionarily, but in a contemporary society become really problematic in terms of how they create these in-group, out-group dynamics. Um, Wait, I agree with that. Why am I letting myself off well, the hook? I, I, I even <laughs> said like, you, 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 were, you said like, I, I, you know, I, I feel really for pastors who have to deal with this. And I, I kind of want to say like, I, I think you actually do deal with this on like a daily basis every time you walk into a classroom. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. That's true. But I think it is different. I mean, I'm interrupting your thought. No, but no, no. Like go ahead. yeah, like I, I it is I, I I think there are different challenges in doing that, right? Like there are power dynamics and that kind of piece that we could we could sort of put out there, but I guess what I'm what I'm wondering and and so like I come back to my, you know, feelings of disgust in the face of moral outrage over coronavirus. Yeah. And I think about this and I go like is part of what I'm after when I think about disgust is is like the goal to really not feel disgust in the face of like that kind of moral outrage such that I feel something different. That wasn't super clear. Let me try again. Um, like there's just looks of confusion or you're frozen. Maybe it's- no, I, maybe I think it's I get it. But, yeah. but um, I'm always confused. It's okay. Let me, let me, let me get it this way, right? Like I'll, I'll put this on the like the religious sensibility, right? Is is part of what religion does moderate our feelings of disgust, so that certain folks are in, other folks are out. But what we really want religion to do, and if we look really deeply into many religious traditions, part of what they're doing is coming up with ways 
to mitigate disgust so that they become more inclusive? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, can I say, or can I ask, like, is the heart of the question you just asked about really like in some cases we want people not to feel disgust, but in others, we want them to feel disgust. And that is largely based on like what we believe is right and wrong. So how do we talk about disgust in this objective way when we get mad that like, oh, you can't feel disgust, but I get to feel disgust. Yes. And and part of what I would say is like, is there any situation anymore where my reaction of disgust is still justified? Given that there's probably not like an existential threat in most of my disgust reactions. Yeah. I think this is a great question because I think it, it, um, can I interrupt real quick? I'm sorry. It was part of what you said Adam to the end and most of your disgust reactions. Right. So this is the the sort of because you're talking about an existential threat in most yeah, of so your like disgust reactions. Probably my disgust reaction to the my child's eating the poisonous spider is still acceptable. Right? Mm-hmm. So if my if my kid picks up a brown recluse and tries to put it in his mouth. That's not good. That's not good. It's okay if I feel disgust in that instance, right? Mm-hmm. But is my feeling of disgust at Trump this morning when I read the New York Times? Am I morally culpable for that in a way that I'm not morally culpable when my son picks up the brown recluse? That was a really dark example, by the way. It was. On both counts. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I have felt a lot of disgust throughout the pandemic on the way Trump has responded to it. And then with this new report that's come out this week from the Bob Woodward book, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling that. Like disgust anger, frustration, you know, lots of emotions associated with it. I would argue that it's good to feel disgust towards actions or inactions like that because people have died due to inactions, Mm. due to misleading statements and flat out lies. We, I mean, it's hard to say definitively, this is the amount of people who would have survived. I mean, it's hard. You can't say that definitively, but I know there are studies out there about if we had done these things earlier on and had straight messaging about from all levels of leadership, especially from Trump when it comes to things like masks, social distancing, and then also not just messages, but actions too, that lives would have been saved. I think that's a safe assumption to make, a safe statement to make. And so, yes, I feel a lot of disgust towards the information that's been shared recently. And I think my wonder then is like, does that feeling of disgust actually generate the sorts of change that I want? Or does it just perpetuate a sort of in-group, out-group dynamic that I'm, I'll, I'll be frank, right? That I'm pretty religiously opposed to. Yeah. I think it, I think it depends on how you use the disgust. If, if I take the disgust I feel towards his actions or inactions and just bottle it up and keep it in and not call it for what it is, then it's not helpful. If I, you know, but then you get, when you're so getting I, into politics, really there's a percentage of people. Myself, that's probably not good. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, there's a good percentage of people that, you know, they always say that, you know, there's the base pop base percentage for each party, right? When you talk about politics in the U S for each party that are not going to change no matter what. I've never been a big fan of that just because of the fact that I feel like you're missing the person too, the actions of the individual. Um, I feel like by calling it what it is, by speaking out, there's a chance to potentially impact or to help those who are in that middle of undecidedness to, to see why what has come out recently about Trump and the pandemic is so dangerous. There's no such thing as a bad emotion. And I firmly believe that. And that's not just because I was raised by Mr. Rogers. Um, that's like, <laughs> that's chaplaincy 101 right there. Is that every single emotion is simply an experience of the world. And then it's how you choose to use it or let it use you. 
It's how you choose to um, understand it, or if you just simply want to feel it and let it let your your base response go. Like disgust can easily turn into anger, and anger can then either be turned to action or hate. And you know, in this situation, uh, it can go both ways. And like you look at every political cartoon that is meant to be uh, derisive about about Trump, is they they draw him in a way that's disgusting. They make him like Jabba the Hutt sized, with these tiny little hands and this huge jowls, and they really just play up the parts that you would go, ugh. That's disgusting because they're trying to portray visually the visceral feeling that you have from hearing these sorts of reports. And then, so you feel that, and then you can choose what to do with it. But you kind of have to be able to identify it in yourself, find where the core of the disgust is, and deal with it as it affects you, or else you're just trying to do um, like self-therapy on someone else, right? You're, you're, you're just transferring your own internal problems onto someone else. So you got to deal with your own stuff. Clean your house first uh, before you can use any of these positively. Which, you know, um, so the reason why I'm able to eat bugs is because I had a moral conviction that the ways that I eat really negatively impact the world. Uh, especially when it comes to meat, the way that I get my protein, and most of us generally negatively impacts the world. We did a whole episode on this. Mm -hmm. And so I know that one of the most efficient ways to get your protein is through insect protein. And it's at first was like a dare, like it's gross. And I really wish people could see the look on Adam's face when you talk about this. Stuff. And when I tell this to people too, like, all right, so it's one thing to take like a dried cricket with the legs and everything and ask you to eat it. It's another thing to say, all right, so somebody else in a farm somewhere got a bunch of crickets and then baked them and crushed them into a powder and then put that powder into a chocolate peanut butter bar and now eat the bar that is has cricket protein in it. And there's still so many people who'd go, oh, I'm not going to eat that. That's so gross. Despite the fact that it tastes no different from like the normal energy bar you'd get and that there's no legs or anything in it. And we wouldn't think twice about whey protein, which is just like decomposing milk that you've skimmed the top off of. And that's not weird because we've been conditioned to not be disgusted by that. But like I've had to train myself to go there because the moral imperative of of saving the planet outweighed the initial disgust and gave me the 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 fuel to get past the disgust to the point where now it's you know mostly fine. There's still some things that I have to work myself into eating that still gross me out. But uh, like for example. Um, there's 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 two things you may have do heard I, about cockroach milk. This was uh, <laughs> something I brought up in Kendra with earlier, where there's a particular type of cockroach that is unique in that it gives birth to live young, and so oh it secretes Just, oh a kind God. of yellowish substance which crystallizes um, <laughs> that its young eat, and. I don't know why I said slug earlier as something I wouldn't eat. Like, I should have said cockroach. I'm realizing now that that affects me more or than cockroach slugs. Milk. So, so <laughs> it turns out that it's it's one of the healthiest things that we've ever discovered, this, like, cockroach milk. It's not actual milk. And that we that these researchers have discovered if you harvest enough of it and then you process it in the way that you would process, like, almond milk or oat milk, you can create a milk substitute that is healthier, more nutritious than cow's milk. Now, it's very labor intensive. You have to kill the cockroach and you have to harvest the the juices from the abdomen. And it, it takes a lot to do it. And so it's probably not very um, practical. But you know, there's another thing, Ento milk that this company makes from a soldier fly larva 
that's crushed up and then processed in a way that they can create ice cream and a milk substitute that you can use just like normal milk. And that's made out of crushed up soldier fly larva. And if you were to just... Okay, can I interrupt yeah. real quick? Because because I got to go and I got a really funny disgust story Okay, real fast. So when I was faculty at LSU, I did a lot of work with NASA. And there's the uh, NASA Michoud Assembly Facility right outside of uh, New Orleans. And so I did a lot of work there. And while there, we learned about one of the issues that has to be dealt with when it comes to long-term travel in space or even staying up in space for a long period of time is water consumption. Where are we going to get the water? We can't just constantly bring water up because that increases the payload and then you can't do as much science and research and things like that. And so they had to develop a way to um, filter water secretion from humans. And so, you know, urine, sweat, all of those things. And so they found a way to filter it and then have it so that it could be reproduced or, you know, filtered and then redrunk. Um, and they were selling bottles of it, of this water uh, using that system. And so they had some there for us to try. And I was there with a bunch of our teachers I was working with. And they said, does anyone want to try it? And I was like, sign me up, brother. <laughs> so I walked right over, grabbed that bottle and started drinking it. And everyone most everyone in that room freaked out because they're like, you're drinking someone else's urine or someone else's sweat. And I was pointing out that, no, I'm drinking, well, maybe, but <laughs> that it is uh, filtered water that they have to drink in space. Yeah, all water. So it's really not water. that big of a deal. I yeah, actually don't just, find that disgusting at all. I'm I know. Like, <laughs> I thought it was great and it tasted fine. to just like water. Huh. And on that note, I have to go. <laughs> okay. I'll Bye. see you guys later. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> So my point of being were, disgusting there, yeah. um, cockroaches. Uh, with cockroaches and and all of that lovely stuff. Oh, and by, by the way, we we're talking about skittles earlier. If you've eaten a red skittle, you've eaten a bug. Um, they may have. Cha- I think they changed this recently, but most natural red food dye comes from the crushed up carapace of a of a particular red beetle, and I think it's from Mexico. Um, Somewhere in Central or South actually, America. Um, yeah. And so, like, if you've had natural food coloring uh, up until recently, it was probably uh, – Starbucks got sued over this because somebody found out that they were using an insect. And they were like, oh, what if we have allergies? And what if we're religiously opposed to this? And it's disgusting, and I'm never going to have a Frappuccino again. Like, sorry, you've been eating bug products for a long time, and it didn't disgust you, but now suddenly – you can't touch it because it's disgusting. You just didn't know it was there. Um, this is, it's not actually going to hurt you. You can overcome this. And especially if there's a strong moral reason for doing so, if there's a conviction that outweighs the, the visceral mm. disgust, you can change yourself. I actually learned about the Skittle bug, the bug Skittle, <laughs> whenever I uh, got a manicure one time with this like... Uh, coating called shellac i think Mm -hmm. i'm saying that right but i think it has the same beetle substance in it as the skittles do or used to have um and so i thought that was interesting (laughs) i so i can i can get behind the like i'm overcoming a sense of disgust because of like a moral imperative that one makes sense to me i think the harder one for me is and this is probably like where my my face belies my true feelings, right? Um, like I, I, I struggle with, as not a pastor, chaplainy kind of person, right? I, I struggle with the idea that all emotions are neutral, that all emotions are okay, right? And, and I think part of what I would, what I wonder is like, is is, are there actually positive examples of disgust that aren't simply about like an evolutionary advantage? Or are we mostly at that point, once we get outside of the sort of evolutionary like framework for survival in the midst of um, a world that is utterly hostile to us, just I, I agree, that's a big caveat. But right, once you get outside of that, is there still a place in which disgust is positively rendered? Not something we overcome morally, something that we actually lean into. We want to foster disgust about this 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Please, please tell me what are those things you'd like to foster disgust about? Uh, I would like to foster disgust about the absolutely amoral treatment of immigrants. I would like people to be disgusted with the image of children being held in cages by themselves and crying. I want people to be disgusted by the by the the visual of people living on the streets in the wealthiest country in in the world. Like I want people to be disgusted by by looking at somebody's hospital bill in the wealthiest country in the world. Like I want you to be disgusted about the coronavirus and people's response to it. I want you to be disgusted about these because when you feel disgust, like you you have to do something with it and you have to distance yourself from it and you have to you do whatever you can to get rid of it. Uh, like you can't if, if you know that there's a centipede in the room with you, like you're not going to be able to sleep until you know it's dead or gone because you're just disgusted by the thought of this thing walking on you at night. Like I want people to have that kind of of discomfort with the state of so many things in the world that they have to do something about it. Is is there a fear that what happens as a result of that is simply a rejection of anyone who also doesn't feel that disgust? Well, that's absolutely going to happen. <laughs> So it, we're way too tribal for that not to happen. Right. So at the end of the day, is disgust then a positive emotion or even a neutral one if it's creating that sort of tribalistic division? And what happens as a result of that tribalistic division? If what happens from it is the um, societal shift and the ostracization of those people leads to societal change, um, you know, like, for example, there was a time when you couldn't wave a, a swastika without people feeling this visceral disgust at you and then you feeling the societal pressure to put your uh, bigotry and hatred away and keep it in the shadows. And the world was better overall for oppressed people when hate-filled people kept their hatred a secret and felt socially obligated to do so. We don't feel that kind of disgust anymore. And now you've got white nationalists marching in the streets and leading to horrible fear and anxiety for marginalized people. And like, I, I would rather uh, ostracize those people. And I'm sorry to say it. Like, but I think like this is what's really interesting about it. And I, I because I like agree, but also like we're talking here as people who are already inclined to like left liberal thinking. Like if we were speaking to someone who also is like, yeah, disgust is a positive emotion. We should ostracize LGBT people because they, you know, like if it, if we're talking on the other end of the spectrum, we here on this podcast would say like, no, you should not use your disgust that way because like, it goes against what we feel is moral and just and inclusive and like with the world that we want to have where like LGBT people are like free to, to be who they are. And so like, but I agree at the same time that like, I, I will continue to feel that people should feel disgusted by the things that I think are immoral. Um, and I think it's just like something that we have to accept that, like disgust is complicated. And I, I actually wouldn't um, like to your um, question earlier, Adam, I don't actually think of disgust as a neutral emotion or a positive emotion. I think it's just like giving us information. Um, it, to me, it's like an informational emotion. Like it tells me, oh, I feel disgusted. And that's because like, why? I have to ask myself that. Sometimes I might not know. Sometimes I might know that, oh, I'm disgusted because this like runs against the grain of my own moral inclinations or this runs against the grain of like the food that I tend to eat. Like it just, sometimes my disgust will lead me to make better choices that align with my moral principles. And sometimes my disgust is like ungrounded. And I think most of the time it's easy to draw 
uh, a picture of disgust as like irrational, which is not to say that it's bad, but sometimes, I mean, there are all kinds of stories about, you know, scholars who like work on disgust describing instances where they might like dip a cockroach in a glass of um, like water or like juice or something and then like take it out and like ask people to drink it. Um, although like, I don't know, that does actually seem, maybe that's a harder thing to describe as irrational, but a better example Cockroaches is- Cockroaches are very um, clean, despite what you may have yeah, heard. We know you love cockroaches. <laughs> they are not dirty. They are super clean. But like there's actual contact between the cockroach and the juice in that example. I think a better example of what I'm trying to describe is like uh, making brownies in the shape of dog poop. So like there's no contact between the brownie mix and the dog poop, but people will still have a tendency to like be grossed out by that and not want to eat that because there is this idea that there's some kind of contact. And so that's like the kind of irrational element that I'm talking about, which is not to say that you should or should not feel that way. It's just how we process the world. <laughs> so I don't know. It's it's tricky because I, I feel that like sometimes I want to make known that I feel disgusted or angered or any of these emotions. But I think to Adam, maybe this is like what you are thinking about. I also realize that sometimes in my interactions, expressing the emotions that I feel or that I feel someone else should feel actually does not help the conversation. Mm. And it's really like I, I feel like I have to inhabit a space that's like hyper rational in order to be convincing, which has its own like set of problems, but it's just like, it's how humans work, I guess. <laughs> so as a, as a follower of Jesus, personally, my core is love of other with a special focus on those that have not received power and, and love historically or presently. So to me, feeling somebody feeling disgust about a gay couple loving each other and feeling somebody else feeling disgust about a white supremacist marching in the streets are not equal and i i think that when you're disgusted when you feel a visceral not rational disgust about somebody else's happiness and somebody else's personhood and somebody else's um love that that that's wrong and there's something in you that needs to be um examined and get to the bottom of where that disgust comes from is it is there actually something in there that like this is bad for society or is it just that this is the way that i was taught whereas the disgust that i feel for people um for white supremacy is grounded in the fact that that is grounded in uh, artificial hierarchy and hatred and exclusion and one of the 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 big paradoxes of of uh, acceptance is you can't accept people who are in you can't tolerate intolerance or else the intolerance will win out over the tolerance and so in order to be actually tolerant you have to say no to some people, you know, even, even Jesus, you know, in, in all of his inclusions and in all of his follow me said to, said to some people like, no, sorry, you know, if you can't sell everything you have, then don't, don't worry about it. John the Baptist said to the, to the leaders, like who warned you to get a, come over here? No, no, no. I'm about to chop this tree down. Like there are, there are just times where right is right and wrong is wrong. And your disgust is misplaced. And so I, I, I just, I can't get behind a, a kind of both sides are equal. So we can't declare a one being morally superior over the other. I, I just, I, I can't. <laughs> and I mean, I agree with that. And I think it's clear that like, maybe we need to make another distinction here because I think it's different to say that disgust is an emotion that everyone feels and is sometimes grounded in like irrational thinking, but is like something that we can use to justify like a number of different like moral positions. Like that is in its own box. I see that as just like descriptive of what disgust 
is and how it functions. But that is not to say that you cannot have moral positions. Like knowing what I know about disgust and the way that I have been talking about disgust, I still feel like I, I am not um, like a total relativist. Like I, in this other box over here, like I agree with everything that you're saying, Zach, and feel that like, yeah, I understand why someone could feel disgust, but that doesn't make me like think that they're right. <laughs> um, so I just, I like, I understand, but it's like about understanding the way that our like emotional lives work, but understanding that and describing it is not um, subscribing mm -hmm. to it. And so I just, I think that those are two separate things. And I just want to like, be sure that those are distinct and that like listeners understand that that's distinct. Like we're describing something, but like, you don't have to be a relativist. <laughs> like we have moral position. I have moral positions. I'll just say <laughs> moral that, relativism like, is so lazy. I understand. It's like paradoxical a little bit though, because I understand that like the things I feel outraged or like moral disgust by, it doesn't make sense to other people and that's fine, but I'm still going to like fight for those causes and like try to make those things a reality in the world that I live in. Um, and that's just like, that's how it works. And there's inherent paradox in that maybe for some people, but humans are paradoxical. So <laughs> you can't really avoid it. So moral of the story is get a good therapist, figure yourself out, get over yourself and eat some bugs. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I, Adam, do you disaster. have any final words? I have to go pick up my I, son. I, yeah, well, my 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 phone's gonna die here. I I don't I don't know if I like this talk about emotions and stuff that we're doing. This feels very hard. <laughs> <laughs> it is <laughs> correct. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just waiting for the robot revolution where these things go away so <laughs> <laughs> on that note this has been episode 55 of the down the wormhole podcast as always, thanks for being on this journey with us and a huge thanks to our patrons over at patreon who make this show possible if you'd like to help us out with hosting and recording costs, you can find us at patreon.com slash down the wormhole podcast. Make sure to join us next week as we continue our Sinai and Synapses interviews. We'll be talking with Dr. Mark Bloom, who is not only an amazing professor, but also one of our Patreon supporters. It's also just a fascinating conversation about deconstructing a faith that doesn't work anymore and building something new and beautiful in its place. We went pretty deep on this one, so stay tuned and we'll see you then.